Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, the Strategic Posture Commission, Defending America in a Modern World. Please welcome Robert Peters, Research Fellow for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon. My name is Bob Peters. I'm the Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you all for coming. It's our privilege today to have members of the Strategic Posture Commission join us here and share with us their views on their recent report. Established in 2022, the Strategic Posture Commission is a 12-member group that was tasked with reporting out to Congress on the strategic posture of the United States. This is only the second time this has been done in U.S. history. The last time was 2009, when Bill Perry and Jim Schlesinger, two former secretaries of defense, gave their report out to Congress. And I'll point out that this was a time, 2009, when the security environment was quite different from what it is today. The commission's final report came out six weeks ago. I'd recommend that everyone read it. It's important, it's not too long, it's only 160 pages, it's very digestible. You don't need a master's degree in nuclear strategy to understand it. And it's vital in understanding both the challenges that we face as a nation and some of the things that we can do to meet those challenges. And so we're very lucky to have with us three of the 12 commissioners today. So please join me in welcoming our three commissioners to the stage. So with me today is Madeline Creedon, Ambassador Marshall Billingsley, and Ms. Rebecca Heinrichs. To my immediate left, Madeline Creedon. Madeline's had a long career in federal service. Most recently, she served as the Principal Deputy Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration within the Department of Energy. She also served in the Pentagon as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Strategic Affairs, where she oversaw the policy developments in the areas of nuclear policy, missile defense, nuclear security, countering WMD, missile defense, cybersecurity, and space. She also served as counsel for the Senate Armed Services Committee, where assignments included um, stints of serving the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, as well as issues related to threat reduction and nuclear nonproliferation. To her left is Ambassador Marshall Billingsley. Marshall's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he focuses on illicit finance and arms control. Prior to joining Hudson, Marshall was the special presidential envoy for arms control at the State Department, where he held the rank of ambassador. Before joining the State Department, Marshall served as the Assistant Secretary of Treasury for Terrorist Financing. He also served as the President of the Financial Action Task Force. And he's held a number of senior positions in the U.S. government to include as the Deputy Undersecretary of the United States Navy, as well as being the Assistant Secretary General at NATO. And then finally, we have Ms. Rebecca Heinrichs. Rebecca is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and is the director of its Keystone Defense Initiative where she specializes in U.S. national defense policy with a focus on strategic deterrence. Rebecca currently serves on the U.S. Strategic Command's Strategic Advisory Group. She is an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics and is a staff member <coughs> of the Defense and Strategic Studies Program at Missouri State University. 
She previously worked in the U.S. House of Representatives, where she focused on matters related to strategic forces on the House Armed Services Committee and was instrumental in starting the Bipartisan Missile Defense Caucus. She's, in fact, defending her Ph.D. dissertation next week. So um, for today's format, I'll ask the commissioners a few questions, and then we'll open up to the audience for Q&A. Before we do so, get to, to get to the questions, Madeline, I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the high-level takeaways, findings, and recommendations uh, that the commission came out with. Thanks, Bob. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk about our report today. Um, first, I should probably mention the obvious, um, that it is a consensus report, uh, which I've find not only remarkable, but also truly indicative of the commitment that these 12 commissioners had to national security. We very much wanted to be able to present both a hard-hitting report, uh, a clear-eyed report, a factual report, fully informed by the threat and our, our many intelligence briefings, um, but also to bring to the fore and compile in one place a lot of information that normally isn't available in one place. So we have a section on the threat. So it is very much threat-informed. It's forward-looking. It recognizes that we are in a very different strategic posture than we have ever been before on the cusp of facing two nuclear peers. This is a, a geopolitical situation for which the U.S. was not prepared, we did not want. Um, and here we are. So our report very much is focused on what are those things that we need to do now? How do we act with urgency so that we can position ourselves to be able to meet this emerging challenge, to meet this emerging threat that's coming towards us? Um, and not only think about it from a nuclear perspective, but also from a conventional perspective and a whole of government perspective and and how it fits within arms control and threat reduction and the whole panoply of, of government actions. Great. Thank you. Um, and it, so you're right. When you read the report, it strikes me how much emphasis is placed on getting the conventional component right before you think about real significant investments in the nuclear arsenal. And I think that may surprise some of the folks when they actually read the report. Um, so first question, some have argued that the current nuclear modernization effort, which began in 2010, should be sufficient to maintain a credible deterrent. And so I, I guess the obvious question is, um, why do we need to change our current posture? Why is the 2010 modernization effort not sufficient uh, to deter an attack on the United States? Uh, Marshall, if you want to. Yeah, <clears throat> I think the report, and I do hope everyone, including those uh, watching online, has a chance to, to read it. Uh, we worked over every single word in that document. <clears throat> and as Malin, who ably chaired the, the commission, pointed out, it is bipartisan and unanimous, every aspect, um, which in this town is uh, a rare thing. And the reason I believe that we were able to reach unanimity on a series of, of major shifts in course is due to the threat. If you go back and you read the 2009 commission report, which we all did, many of us multiple times, you'll notice a striking change in, in tone. And the reason is that in 2009, we were not facing a China 
that is engaged in a massive uh, secretive buildup. And as you've seen senior officials during the Trump administration and then now during the Biden administration come out and, and state publicly, you know, those estimates of double in its arsenal to at least double, to triple, to now quadruple, to, as we say in the commission report, you know, they're on pace to, to either rival or even perhaps surpass uh, the number of fielded nuclear weapons that we ourselves possess. I think the other big tonal change is due to the, the naked aggression of, of Russia in Ukraine, which very much affected the Commission's deliberations on all manner of issues, including uh, the threat of coercive nuclear attack, either against NATO or on the United States, and the fact that Xi Jinping has gotten increasingly bellicose in his rhetoric with regard to Taiwan. So for all of these reasons and many others, uh, you will find a, a series of recommendations uh, that stretch from the conventional to the strategic. Some bring cost, but others are simply uh, structural changes, maybe minimal cost to do something, for instance, uh, like elevating the NNSA director to a deputy secretary of energy, uh, or to begin uh, all of the necessary planning to, to upload our hedge onto the existing weapon systems. But it is not the case where the modernization program that was foreseen back in 2010 will generate or will provide sufficient quantity and composition for our deterrent in the future. I think the commissioners were, were not unified on the, the necessity to increase quantity, but we were all unified on the point that, uh, uh, that the current approach will not be sufficient. Great, thank you. Um, Rebecca, a lot of folks in the, in the disarmament community have suggested that the recommendations within the final report are designed either intentionally or unintentionally to provoke an arms race, particularly with Russia and China. Um, indeed, I'd say that this is probably the most persistent criticism of the report um, that's escalatory um, and will lead us to a, a path um, that we want to go down. How would you respond that this is, that this is a clarion call to initiate an arms race? Um, well, first of all, thank you. It's a privilege to be able to be here. Um, it's great to be here with Madeline and Marshall. Um, it was, uh, just to footstomp what, what both of them already said, it's, it was um, the, the findings, the findings and recommendations here are bipartisan. It's a consensus document. And it is um, because of, I think, two things. One, uh, because of the nature of the threat, we really focused on what the, th what the threat was doing. But also, uh, if I could encourage everyone, one particular section is the stakes section of the report, where we came together. And really, before you even get to threat, you have to talk about what it is you're trying to defend. And so to have a bipartisan consensus, despite how um, you know, um, uh, politically volatile this town can be, to have this, the 12 of us to, to try to get on the same page in terms of what the United States is doing and what our interests are, I think is really important. Which gets to your, your question, Bob. Um, our adversaries have been racing. We have not. And so we, we are really um, in the middle of, of um, a modernization, nuclear modernization program that began in 2009 with a very, very different threat picture. Um, yes, Russia was the, the, the major nuclear power that we were seeking to deter. But even there wasn't even a sense of urgency that Russia was the primary nuclear threat. It was nuclear terrorism. That was, the primary, that was one of the assumptions of nuclear posture reviews of the Obama administration. It was President Bush's operating sort of assumption. It's 
One of the reasons he was comfortable pulling, you know, he, according to himself, when he pulled out of the ABM treaty was that Russia was not the threat that, that the Soviet Union once was, and that our primary concern was then from rogue state actors from the missile defense perspective. And so that clearly has changed. And so um, the, the, the Russia threat is, is more acute. And then China was a lesser included case back in 2009. And now it's in the midst of a strategic breakout. And so um, my response is, you know, the, the, the Russian nuclear program is at the end of a recapitalization. So not just the way we do modernization, a total recapitalization of their program. And it's not even just what their weapon systems are, it's how the Russians are behaving. So the Russians obviously invaded Ukraine in 2014, and then a full-scale invasion in February 2022, and we grappled with that. Look at the Russian behavior and what it is they're trying to do. It's the same thing with China. And so I think that there's this misconception right now that, you know, the US, that the United States' defense of Ukraine has pushed Russia and China together, which actually, you know, from my own speaking my, personally, now my own assessment, you know, the, the Russians were bolder because of China's increasing backing of, of, of what the Russians um, were, were willing to do. And, and I just say that, so, so when you get back to the report, what the report finds is that the United States must be able to deter both Russia and China simultaneously. That's one of the big findings of the report. And so that's obviously going to drive changes in the US nuclear posture because of just the nature of what both of those two countries are doing. And then in addition to the rogue state actors, which we grapple with in the report. Great, thank you. Um, Madeline, some have offered that we spend too much money on, on our strategic deterrence already. We put too much money in nuclear weapons already. And what the Posture Commission recommends is simply more of the same, and the cost is too great, and we'd be better served by spending money on conventional capabilities or even more, ideally, uh, non-military capabilities. How would you respond on the cost criticism? Well, first, I want to emphasize both in the legislative language that set us up and in the legislative language that directed what we do, um, the word strategic is not synonymous with nuclear. It's not the Nuclear Posture Commission, it's the Strategic Posture Commission. Yep. So from that perspective, we looked at a very broad um, strategy, and that strategy includes conventional nuclear as well as a whole of government, as I mentioned. So in the report, uh, when, you, when you really read the report, what comes out of it is that we do need to support the program of record. The program of record is not sufficient and will probably need some adjusting. But the real strength of this report, the real focus of this report, is on the conventional side. Mm -hmm. Most of the nuclear systems are already baked into the budget. We've already planned for Columbia-class submarines. We've already planned for ICBMs. We've already planned for B-21 bom bombers, the LRSO, uh, infrastructure recapitalization at DOD, and the National Nuclear Security Administration. What we found is a, 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 a need for increased focus and attention on the conventional system. Because if you, all the conventional systems, in both theaters, Europe and the Indo-Pacific, because if you want to prevent a nuclear war, well, you have to prevent war to begin with, and you prevent war to begin with by having more capable conventional deterrence and more capable conventional capacity. So that's where we, in fact, do focus, yeah. is on the conventional side. Yeah. Bob, if I can, too, because that is so important, what Madeline just said, and, and I think it gets to a, um, 
it's sort of preempting uh, uh, an accusation of, of one of the, the, the arms buildup. But, but if we do not want to rely more on nuclear weapons, which is something that this country has tried to do, move away from nuclear weapons in our national defense strategy, you have to build up conventional. You have to build up conventional. If you refuse to build up conventional, then you have to rely more on your nuclear deterrent. And so, so that point that Madeline just said is, is so important. You, you want to deter the kinds of regional conflicts that can grow into a larger scale conflict, conventional, that can end up escalating to the point where nuclear employment is considered by our adversaries. And so that's, that was a big piece of how we thought about, about the report. In fact, the report explicitly states that. Right. Um, but I, let's, be, let's be clear, when you have a China that has gone from, let's say, around 250 nuclear weapons they will have, in our, in our unclassified estimates, we say they will have around 700 by 2027. And they will have at least 1,500 uh, by 2035. They already today have more ICBM silos than we do. Now, they don't have ICBMs in each one of those silos yet. But <clears throat> that's, a, that's a fundamental game changer. And as the commission assessed that, what we arrived at the conclusion is that the, the sheer increase in the number of targets uh, implied by this Chinese buildup and by the fact that the Russians, of course, continue to not only have, maintain rough parity with us on the strategic side, but greatly, vastly exceed our arsenal in the tactical, shorter-range nuclear weapons field that the program of record that was foreseen back in 2010 is not sufficient. And that is why we recommend an increase in the number of Columbia-class submarines. It's why we recommended an increase in the number of B-21 bombers. It's why we recommended, as I mentioned, the upload, but we also recommend the fact that we cannot continue to not have a low-yield tactical uh, capability in the Asia-Pacific region. And while we didn't come out and specifically endorse one particular uh, solution over another, we identified the characteristics that are needed uh, for a low-yield, non-obviously generated capability for that region. And these are nuclear bills that, that do need to be paid. But let's keep it in context. If you talk to the Armed Services Committees, um, the amount of money we spend on the deterrent as a percentage of the overall DOD budget is not in the double digits, yeah. right? It, depending on how you count a B-21 bomber or how you count a Columbia-class submarine, it's in the, depending on whose math, four to eight percent of the overall DOD budget. So again, the focus is on maintaining our conventional capability to deter conflict so that we do not have to increase reliance and probability of needing to escalate to nuclear. Yeah, great. As Madeline pointed out, that you know the strategic posture is not just about nukes. It's not just about the conventional. It's about whole of government. It's about other strategic capabilities. Um, Rebecca, can you walk us through um, what is the role of missile defense when it comes to our strategic posture? Because I think that's an important component as well when you're talking about our deterrence posture. Sure. On a, on a larger point, one of the things I think just thematically as you read the report, we emphasize that we are not dramatically changing the way this country does deterrence. So we say we are we we we're not reinventing the wheel. And so we 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 know to Marshall's point, this is why the the number when he said that the number of targets are increasing, because we we do deterrence by holding at risk what the adversary values, and then we have categories for what those what those are. Um, they're strategic and non-strategic. They're uh, means of maintaining control of their populations and the regime itself. And so we know what those are. So as the, that number just grows, that just means the number of things we need to hold at risk also grows. Um, uh, and, and the other thing that has maintained um, 
consistency is that over, over the several, from the Obama administration, um, the Trump administration, and the, um, the Biden administration have all affirmed that missile defense also plays a role in the deterrence of how the United States thinks about our strategic deterrence in the regional um, context, but also the homeland. Um, the reason for that is that it, it can um, cause the adversary to, to not be certain in, the, in his ability to achieve an attack on the U.S. homeland. I'm just going to talk about homeland. But our homeland missile defense system is designed to defend against the rogue state actors, North Korea, and an accidental and unauthorized attack from a peer state, Russia and China. And then we rely on deterrence, nuclear deterrence, for any large-scale attack from peers. That's still true. We're not recommending a change there. But what we do recommend a change in is adapting our missile defense system to take away the coercive threat from peers, China and Russia. What I mean by that is very concerned that, um, as we've seen with Ukraine, Russia, Russia knows that it, it, will, it will lose a conflict with the United States if it takes us head on. What do they, they want to do? They want to convince the United States not to, be, not to come to the aid of our allies. And, and so concerned about the possibility that, we'll stick with just Russia, could strike in a limited sense, not in a massive sense, the US homeland, US mainland, in such a manner to paralyze us but not enrage us, so that the, that the American people and our politician decision makers decide that it's not worth a retaliatory response or coming to the aid of our allies for fear of escalation. And so we were uncomfortable with that. We want to take away that temptation and that vulnerability. So one of our recommendations is, to, is to, to bolster missile defense of the homeland. We do not say specifically programmatically, to Madeline has repeatedly said we don't pick winners and losers, so we don't mention the specific program. But we say to, to get at it, looking at the problem. What do we need to defend? And then invest in the technology when it's technologically feasible, deploy something quickly, so that if, a, if a Russia is going to attack the US homeland, it's going to have to go bigger. That we're, it's not going to be able to get away with some of these sort of like a scoped limited threat. So that was a significant adaptation from the commission. Great. Uh, Marshall, continuing with the whole government theme, it, outside of DOD, what is the role of the State Department or the Department of Treasury when it comes to deterrence and trying to dissuade our adversaries from going down certain pathways? Well, I mean, the role of state is... Yeah should be to clearly communicate uh, from a position of strength uh, our determination uh, to, to do what it takes to protect ourselves, our own interests, and those of our friends and our allies. I am very pleased that the Commission this time has incorporated uh, into its recommendations uh, a discussion of financial and economic tradecraft. Uh, one of the things that, that we've seen uh, effectively done I had a hand in this in the Trump administration with some of my friends here in the audience, uh, is the employment of sanctions and export controls to channel an adversary uh, into a direction that we want them to go. The challenge is that with actors the size of Russia, and certainly actors the size of China, um, this gets very complicated very quickly. And the Department of the Treasury, I will say from firsthand experience, is very good at the tactical and maybe the operational level, but it does not conduct strategic planning in the same manner that the Department of Defense does. The Department of Defense, by far and away within our government, is the best uh, equipped and practiced at complex, iterative, 
branching and sequeling, uh, training or, or, or simulation, wargaming, and, and ultimately campaign planning. So one of our major recommendations is that the Department of Defense, the president, should make this clear that this is a whole of a government effort and he should direct the Department of Defense to offer up that expertise in organizational matters so that the subject matter expertise of the Commerce Department for export controls, for Treasury for the sanctions, and State Department for diplomatic overtures and some of the sanctions authorities that state has are brought together into, into a synchronized campaign plan. We arrived at the decision to recommend this uh, in part because we found with each of the combatant commands that we discussed these matters, they would talk about diplomatic, informational, military, and economic, but that E was so small as to almost be vanishing. And, and we need that E to be part of this equation. Yeah, great. So, so if I could just add something to that. Um, I think this is really important. I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get that message through about the whole of government approach, which is all of those dime things. <clears throat> and sometimes when you talk about it, it's, it's kind of a throwaway. You know, people's reaction is, well, of course. But we need to do this much better. And the economic part of it is a, is a very large part of it. We're not saying the Department of Defense should do the planning for all these other agencies. We're just saying that all these other agencies and the Department of Defense really need to work together in a more strategic, in a more coordinated way, um, including the Department of Energy. Everything in our government that can play a role in terms of shaping our message, shaping our deterrence, should be coordinated. And, and we need to do a lot of work on doing that better. Let me just, it's one thing to talk about sanctions in the context of a country with an economy the size of Texas, which is Russia, yeah. okay? When you're talking about China, which has an economy nearly as large as ours, which has out of the top 10 banks in the world, the four largest. So I'm a little off script here because we didn't get this detailed uh, in the commission assessment. But you, you, some of the tools that we traditionally have relied upon to deal with the Russias, the Irans, the Venezuelas, the North Koreas are simply not available in a Chinese context. But does that mean that we just fold up our tent and go home on economic statecraft? Or do we really now begin to plan and to select the kinds of tools that the interagency has and to think through a time phase sequence of application to deter Xi Jinping, to communicate to him consequence if he invades Taiwan? That's really, I think, where, where we, we'd like to see the planning and a different approach by, this, by our government. One last thing on that too that I was that I learned uh, from from Marshall's participation on this issue too, is that by using these tools that we have, economic statecraft, you can also, if you do it right, you can buy yourself some time. Yeah. You can buy so you can you can buy yourself some time as the United States works to do these other things that we have to do to to, to strengthen the credibility of our deterrence. Great. Um, Madeline, question for you, but really for all three of you. We've seen a couple articles come out over the last two months that says, basically, we can get to uh, fewer nuclear weapons within the US arsenal if we change our targeting schema. That is, if we move away from counterforce targeting, targeting adversaries' weapon systems, command and control, and move more towards targeting critical infrastructure, major industry, which all happen to rely around major population centers. And so it's almost this kind of um, back channel way to get back to city targeting in, in some sense. How would you respond to that as, as a way to, to reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the arsenal? 
So I want to make sure that it's very clear that this report um, reaffirmed the, the, the strategy of the last dozen administrations, yeah, probably, ever since decades. World War II, yeah. um, and had very strong uh, support for the six, you know, the six tenets that underpin all these, the six tenets that underpin all the nuclear planning. What we found was um, the assumptions that one, like one major war strategy construct is no longer viable. Okay, well that changes how we think about things, mm -hmm. but, and, and it, it might, as the, as the commission report identified, it might mean more, it might mean different, it might mean both. But our goal is to be able to effectively message deterrent, have a credible deterrent, and credible not just to our adversaries, but also to our allies. Because having that credible deterrent is also a very large portion of nonproliferation, so that other allies don't develop their own, and come together as alliances. So our allies are very important um, in how we think about planning, how we think about going forward. And it's not, the, the goal is not numbers. Numbers are important, but the goal is not numbers. The goal is effective deterrence. So when somebody says, well, you know, we just should reduce numbers, and that's, that should be the goal in and of itself, the answer is no. In the same way that the answer isn't, well, we should just increase numbers, and that's the answer in itself. The answer is no. You know, we have to look at what we need to implement our strategy, to implement our policies, and be able to shape our force structures so that we can effectively do that. But if you say, well, let's just go lower, well, we start to a little bit resemble North Korea which I don't want to do in any stretch of the imagination, but we have an obligation to also be mindful of what we're doing. We don't want a nuclear war. We don't want to ever get there. And it would be even worse if we were to change some of this strategy and, and go after cities, as some have said. We want to make sure that the US always maintains legality and the moral high ground. And I think going in that direction would lose both for us. Totally agree. This was discussed, uh, and as, as, as in all things, very strongly felt unanimity on this point, that threatening to vaporize civilians um, is not uh, uh, the kind of approach that we feel the United States should take for a wide range of issues. But leaving that aside, just look at what Putin is doing in Ukraine, throwing conscripts and, and Russian civilians who've not received any military training at all into the meat grinder, losing 300,000 so far. Do we really think Vladimir Putin would be deterred by a threat against a Russian city? It's yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say um, we, 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 we are reaffirming the way this country has thought about deterrence. Really, um, when Schlesinger uh, argued for increased flexibility, increased options because of the concern that the Soviets simply would not be deterred by threat of massive retaliation and that we needed to have more options because if deterrence failed, you want to give the, the, the president um, a suite of options to be able to use the correct tools necessary to convince the adversary that he should not continue going down this, this path. And that's what, that's, that's what the flexibility is for. And that's what the variety of yields is for. That's what the variety of platforms is for. And um, because you want, to, you want to be able to have responses 
on the lowest level of violence possible to carry out your military strategic objective. And, and so um, we've reaffirmed that. We've reaffirmed that. And, and so um, it's for, we, 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 it would not be credible to Marshall's point. And this is, we talked at multiple commanders and former commanders um, of various commands who have said the same thing, that it, it would not be credible. And so it would, it would actually tempt the very thing that we're trying to prevent. But then if that deterrence did fail, it would give us um, um, options that we simply don't, don't want to take and don't need to take. And I would put it back on those making this argument. We don't have to go that direction. We do not have to. Go. So why in the world would you move away from, from the way the United States has done this for, for um, definitely since the 70s uh, in a very sort of serious, um, self-aware way? Why would you do that when we simply don't even have to do that? Um, we, so anyway, we can, we can follow the laws of armed conflict and maintain credible deterrence by, by seeking to hold at risk what the adversary values most. It's not cities. Great. So following to that, Rebecca, the, the final report says we should identify what our strategy is, what our subordinate deterrence requirements are to execute that strategy. And then once you do those things, then you can identify opportunities in trade space for future arms control down the road. One of the criticisms is that the SBC final report gets that backwards, that you should focus first on arms control as a means to stabilize the environment, and then from there identify what remaining deterrence requirements you may have. What would you say to those who say, we need to focus first on arms control so we can save money and reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world and so forth? That's a great briefing to give to Beijing. That's what I would say. I mean, they're the ones that are unwilling to have conversations about this. It's the Russians that are now um, formally announced they're not going to be complying with the New START Treaty, certain um, aspects of it that are really important about accountability and transparency. So um, that is that the, our adversaries have chosen uh, that this is not something that they're interested in doing. So it has forced the United States to make decisions now um, to respond. We are the ones who are defending the status quo. And so they are the ones that are challenging the status quo internationally, and they're doing it by massive military buildups, including, um, most concerning um, to me, their, their nuclear aspect. So um, we might get to a place where our, our adversaries determine that it's in their interest to sit down at the negotiating table and have a conversation about certain things. But we're not there yet. Um, one thing that um, the commission did uh, recommend is that, um, the, and I'll turn over to my commissioners to, to talk more about this too. I don't want to take the floor too much, but this issue of FOBs, that the Chinese have to this fractional orbiting bombardment system, that that is a, a system that, that we are not testing and that China, China has, and that we would be very pleased to have the Chinese um, decide to, to agree to some kind of ban on testing that particular weapon. So that would be something that the arms control folks can, can get busy at working on. I would also say that it's just misplaced yeah. because it's what we've always done. When you look at the New START Treaty, before the negotiating parameters were defined, the Obama administration did an extensive review as to what the, what the boundaries of the deterrent was th that was needed at the time to, to meet the guidance at the time. That was decided, and then the negotiating team went forward. So it's the same thing that always happens. Um, so I find that this is a criticism of something that is sort of the same old, same old, yeah. sort of fascinating at, at some level. Yeah. And the reason it's important to say that, that we need to set our own requirements first in order to then determine how to approach the negotiations becomes all the more important given the many things we don't know today about China's intentions 
and how quickly and how far they intend to actually go. The rapidity of their buildup, they are the least transparent of the P5 uh, of the nuclear nations. Um, as, as Rebecca has said, they refuse to engage in meaningful discussions with us on this topic. Um, make it very, very difficult at this stage, as the commission said, uh, to, to really see unless there's a change in strategic circumstances that arms control, qua arms control, offers the kinds of solutions that our security demand. We should never close the door and we need to reinforce the centrality of the NPT in particular uh, to us. We do identify a number of areas where uh, either formal arms control arrangements such as uh, ICBM launched FOBs should be banned because that's a first strike decapitation weapon waiting to happen. Uh, but we also identify a, a range of other confidence uh, building measures that we do think are worthwhile. And, and so for the arms control community, to it, which is now looking for something to do, um, given that Russia has violated the last of the, the remaining arrangements we have with them, um, I would urge them to read that section a little more carefully and apply themselves in the direction that we recommend in these areas. Great. One final question before we open up to the audience for Q&A. Um, Madeline, if, if, if you're sitting, one of our viewers at home is watching this and they're thinking to themselves, well, what can I do here in Topeka or Birmingham or Portland? What, what, what can I do? I, this all makes sense, but I'm just sitting at home. What can I do as an average ordinary citizen to, to affect some change? Or the, we may have some, some staffers here in the audience here today. What would you say to those staffers as well as what they can do if they care about these issues and, and want to affect change? So the first part of this is I think we, we really need to take to heart the fact that the US has a role and must maintain this role as a global leader. It's extraordinarily important. We, we are the global leader. Many countries look to us. And in that context, we have strong allies and partners. And those strong allies and partners are essential. They're a unique aspect that we have as a, as a nation that Russia and China don't have, and they would like us to not have that. So there, there's, there's a constant effort to drive a wedge between uh, the United States and our allies and partners. Now, that's not to say that we can't do more with our allies and partners, that we shouldn't do more. We, we need to do, do more. We have to do uh, more cooperation, more coordination, more planning, so we can continue to get better as a whole. But we have a, a strong global role. We have the the trade that we have today. We have the freedom of movement that we have today. We have the human rights um, advocacy that we have today, all because the US has, has maintained a strong role as a global leader. Uh, Russia and China are challenging that role. And we need to be very serious about how we look at that, because that is real, and it's important that we can counter that, and that we can maintain our capability and our, our role as a, as a leader uh, in the world. It's extraordinarily important. At this point, we're going to open it up for Q&A from the audience. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. We've got folks with microphones right here. Sir, right here. Uh, Jeff Braun with Systems Planning and Analysis. Um, I'm curious, you've, you've all mentioned, I think, throughout the questions so far, uh, that we need to have tailored options and a range of options uh, for the president to use in a variety of situations. Uh, where my mind starts to go is kind of across the spectrum of conflict, everything from peacetime to you know 
conventional conflict, very limited onesie twosies, nuclear, more more than that, and then full out exchange. As you look across that spectrum, did the did the um, commission find that there was a particular sort of I guess I'll use the old term rung in that in that spectrum that was particularly that we were lacking in being able to deter, or is it across the board? Um, and could you elaborate? I'll, do we go ahead and first? Well, I'll, I'll say one. One may. I'll just take one. Won't talk about all of them. So yes, I mean we, we've seen some areas where we need to have more capabilities and need to be thinking about. Um, uh, this administration has called it campaigning, deterrence campaigning, and just being more obvious about what we're trying to do to push the adversary and steer the adversary away from going down the path of conflict. Um, but the big one um, is in um, in the Asia Pacific. Is that that we 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 listed the uh, and, and we tried throughout the report. We tried the, the tone is that we're trying to convey a sense of urgency. But if but if everything is sort of hair on fire, then you, the reader's going to kind of say, okay, now which one then do we do first? But on this one, we really said it's urgent. We have to urgently adapt our force posture in the region to get something that meets these criteria facing China. And so that would be one in particular that I would just want to foot stomp and say that we didn't, again, we didn't say that it had to be slick them in, but we listed it has to be able to fulfill these criteria. Again, because we need to have that. We, we need to be able to have a credible response of the adversary um, to further complicate his calculations that, that we might have a proportional credible response that, um, that we could use quickly in that theater to deter him from an initial action. So that's one specific example. I'll give you a conventional example. So one of the things that we, uh, looked at. <clears throat> Obviously, we were for years precluded from building uh, intermediate range missile systems, both hypersonic and ballistic and cruise, uh, due to the INF Treaty. Now, of course, Russia cheated on that treaty, clandestinely built, and then actually deployed such systems. But China was never part of that arrangement and therefore felt itself free to develop and deploy many dozens of kinds of theater and shorter range systems. Uh, one of our recommendations addresses that, and, and we specifically call upon uh, the Department of Defense to accelerate the development, the fielding of these shorter and medium range INF, not nuclear, but INF type mm -hmm. missile systems, together with hypersonics as another missing run. We didn't, in fact, I think the Commission probably wouldn't agree with the notion of rungs in an escalatory ladder, but to use your terminology, I would, I would point to that as, as an example. And I would go even more foundational because our, our biggest single recommendation, in my view, was the need to switch to a two-war strategy. And that two-war strategy, whether that war is too simultaneous, too um, sequential, but we need to switch to a two-war strategy. If we do that, then the U.S. Um, both defense and nuclear force structures have to be designed and implemented to effectively carry out that strategy. And so when you, when you say we have to be prepared for a two-war strategy, now there's a whole bucket of things, if you will, that we have to analyze and figure out, okay, what does that mean really? What does that mean practically? You know, is it this many ships or that many ships? Is it this many tankers or that many tankers? You know, what's needed in this theater? Well, you know, Europe needs more ground troops. Asia Pacific needs more, more ships. You know, uh, there's a huge amount of analysis that, that needs to be done to figure out what implementing that strategy means. And that's one of the things that 
is, if you will, a tasking for the administration, for the Defense Department, for the Department of Energy, for the State Department, for everybody to figure out, okay, what does that really mean and what does that look like? So it's hard to identify those sorts of gaps until that analysis is done. I mean, we know where there are some gaps, yeah. as we've mentioned. And, you know, of course, the one that has been a perpetual for years is tankers. You know, we know a lot of this stuff we know already. But it's that bigger foundational analysis that needs to be done. But we do call for some more creative thinking yep. in, in these known gap areas. For instance, yep. if you make the assumption that it's we're simply not going to dig more ICBM silos, uh, one of the things we call upon is an examination uh, of the feasibility of a road mobile ICBM. Um, as, as an example, we're not saying do it, but we're saying dust that off and take another look at it given the change circumstances that we now face. We also put a lot of emphasis, we haven't talked about it today, on new technologies, new capabilities, how to bring in um, more creative thinking, how to adapt some of the new technologies so we can be more efficient, faster, um, we were certainly not the Procurement Commission. There's an entire different commission looking at that, the PPBE Commission. Um, and I wish them well. It's a huge task. But we also recognize that there have to be improvements in the procurement system so that the Defense Department particularly um, can figure out how to do things faster, how to be more innovative, how to bring in these smaller, more creative, more nimble um, companies and thinkers to be able to do that. You know, obviously there's some starts, but it it has to it has to go better. I mean, General Hyten, who was the former um, commander of U.S. Strategic Command and the Joint, and the the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was on our commission as well, and he has talked about this for years. You know, we have to do better. We have to go faster. We have to figure out how to be more nimble and flexible. And that was also one of the things that we recognize has to be part of this. Sir. Sir Dillard, being a former government bureaucrat, um, how important uh, is it to have uh, as a priority uh, situational awareness of our own hemisphere? We know that the Chinese have started building ports all over the place. There's one in, in Peru right now in Shanghai that's about $3 billion worth of, of infrastructure that's going to have an opening to, toward the Pacific. And then they've also been able to increase the number of stations that track our stuff in the sky uh, now to the tune of about 11. One in Argentina is pretty big. And this is in our hemisphere. And as we see the technology develop, we don't, if you put uh, something that uh, can go around into orbit and then pick its own targets, uh, how concerning is that? And how does that fit into the scheme of things, especially when it comes to uh, the defense of this hemisphere. I'll, Go for it. I, um, it's good to see you, my friend. Um, the there's a lot of text devoted to the issue of space. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of what we wanted to say we we couldn't really put into the the unclassified report. But what I would say is is we are. As concerned as we are about China's nuclear buildup, we're also extremely concerned about what China is doing in space as well as Russia. So, um, for instance, you know, China's pursuing space superiority. Uh, they've more than doubled the number of satellites on orbit uh, to 500 just in the last couple of years. 
And more than half of those are intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance birds. Um, even more concerning to us are the anti-satellite capabilities that these nations are pursuing. And we enumerate a number of them, uh, some portion of them in the unclassified text. But you'll see that, that the United States is simply not going down this road the way Russia and China are. So it does greatly concern us. Um, I would then just close by coming back to this point of economic and financial tradecraft. Um, that is, those are a, a suite of tools that we should be employing in the Western Hemisphere to, to diminish or degrade uh, the activities of our adversaries because a lot of these activities are fundamentally at the front end commercially designed and at the back end militarily intentioned. So to just add on Please. to that, and also a little bit about your question about, well, what do people need to be aware of now? Mm -hmm. um, several days ago, there was a, a interesting discussion in the Washington Post, and they had uh, maps of where China's maritime Silk Road has positioned itself. And when you look at the world and you see it in one picture like that, they're everywhere, you know, all around South America, around Africa, they're everywhere. Um, that's a really good visual to begin to understand how we need to understand what their long-term strategies are, which then I will go to one, one other point, and that's in, the, in our recommendations, buried deep in the recommendations. We also suggest that the intelligence community really, really um, needs to up their game in terms of both um, China and Russia intelligence analysts so that we, in fact, have a much better understanding or a broader understanding of the strategies of each of those countries and where, where they're headed and what are they doing and why, so that that then provides the underpinning for the US as we go forward and define these longer term strategies. It's a big gap. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Sir? Um, I'm Sven Kramer, I work with um, six presidents and eight administrations, national security issues. And I would like to ask you on the issue of arms control. I know of no uh, treaty that Russia or the Soviet Union signed that it's creeping in that area. It, we had, of course, Yalta and other agreements also broken. So the issue of an insurance policy, even getting the database agreed of what you're limiting and how changes can affect your data of what you're reducing or limiting becomes an issue. The cheating becomes an issue. Enforcing compliance, speaking about violations without breaking issues of uh, how you, I found out that they were cheating, but sometimes they just brag about it. The Chinese don't have a good record either, communist Chinese. So one of the reasons that Mr. Reagan, with whom I worked on arms control, came up with the Strategic Defense Initiative was, and we used the vocabulary that it was a moral and strategic imperative to go against MAD and to protect against cheating. And uh, we, however, decapitated that program in later periods in terms of national defense. And so the Iron Dome type thing, which has been very effective in lim lim handling limited threats, 
and might be handling rogue threats is not effective uh, for the strategic things. So I would like to, but we saw it as an insurance policy for all kinds of missile threats. And I suppose today there'd be an equivalent in cyber warfare and handling command structures and other things maybe. So I'd like you to maybe leave us with some ideas about what you recommended in the absence of effective arms control, and I've never seen effective arms control in terms of a rogue or totalitarian, happy to break, cheat it, conceal it. So what what would you, what do you, you didn't say anything about cyber, for example, or, or, or national missile defense. Well, we did. We, so um, I'll take that. So we, we did. We did make the recommendation to to adapt our missile defense, our national missile defense. Um, we did not say specifically how we would go about doing that, but we were specifically. Well, we were pretty scoped in what we were trying to defend against, which is that coercive threat, in order to um, raise you know raise the threshold that the you know ra raise the price of entry. If, if if a pure nuclear power it was going to attack the United States, they're going to have to go big. That they were not that this temptation for a more scoped attack was not going to work, or, or convince them that it probably won't work and they shouldn't try. And so that might be. Um, we, we didn't say how we would do it. It could be, an, in, you know, the, some of the ground-based systems that we currently have that provide point defense. It could be it, we talk about utilizing space, um, and it could be interceptors. It could be sensors. We say it has to be technologically feasible before we would go ahead and do that. And there's a lot of analysis that goes behind that. But, but the point is, um, and I will just say, speaking from as just myself here, not the full commission. I mean, we, we launch costs have gone way down since even during the Cold War, so for some sort of space option. And technology has improved, and we've been able to see what the commercial space side has been able to achieve, even in terms of just cost and how quickly Elon Musk can get up Starlink, et cetera. So, so some of these old ideas that may have seemed um, cost prohibitive or didn't make sense after a while, um, even if you disagree with that argument, those who made that argument, I think some of those arguments are just simply less credible today than they were even back then. Um, that's, but we, we certainly are looking at missile defense as some aspect um, so that we're not merely relying on just retaliation, offensive retaliation for deterrence. Well, we're about out of time, but before we break, um, perhaps we could close out with each one of you um, leaving us with some closing thoughts. And Rebecca, maybe we start with you and end with you, Madeline. I mean, I would just say briefly, just another thing on the escalation point too, not escalation, but we, we did, that's one of the reasons that we talk about even increasing the number of B-21s is we do not want our adversaries to have sanctuary anywhere. So some of these things that we want to be able to put weapons on targets on are, are deep inside enemy territory. And we do not want the Chinese to think that because of their air defenses or because of how, how they're doing, um, um, how they're putting their weapon systems that that they have sanctuary, and so that's what the B21 in particular. So we talk about um, um, increasing the number of B21s because that weapon system would be particularly suited to be able to do that should deterrence fail. So that's my one point. My my second sort of larger point um, is that this report really is for the American people. We really did try. That was one of Senator Kyle's biggest points um, as we worked on this is please let's try to write this in such a way is so that everybody can read it at home. Those watching can read it at home and understand what U.S. interests are and what we're trying to do as a country. So as divided as we are in domestic issues, that we can kind of work through those as Americans, we have to get this part right in a nonpartisan fashion, that this is just too important. Um, we, you know, we're to the point now, it's like you get all these threat briefings. It's like we do not have to go abroad looking for dragons to slay. They are parked off our coast with cruise missiles. 
Okay, you can see them. So, um, so I, I would just I would encourage folks to read it and to understand that we are in a very complex, dangerous environment um, with two major nuclear powers trying to contest the, the, the order that the United States built and that Americans and our allies have continued to benefit from. You know, the Heritage Foundation has a very rich heritage of, of uh, being supportive of Reaganite principles of peace through strength, of the enduring uh, values of our alliances and partnerships. So I, I think the two things that I would encourage uh, conservatives who, who listen in to this uh, either today or on a podcast in the future, I, I'd encourage you to take away two things. One is the fact that the, the international order that we, the United States, painstakingly built after the Second World War is under great threat. And both Russia and China are seeking to overturn that order and replace it with one of their own. And to that extent, uh, our, our fundamental way of life here is at threat with what these adversaries, they're not competitors, they're not pacing threats, they're adversaries, and we call them as such. It's, it's under threat. I'd also encourage people to go read the section on alliances and partnerships. There is a strand of neo-isolationism that is creeping into our political discourse that is, for me, and I think for the Republican commissioners, I think actually for all commissioners, mm -hmm. greatly concerning. And we spend a lot of time with our allies, with our NATO allies. Can certain allies do more and better? Absolutely. But we have a number of allies that are pulling their weight, that are doing their fair share. And we need to understand that these alliances and these partnerships that we've constructed over successive Republican and Democrat administrations is in our national interest. It's in our direct interest to be supportive and supported by these other countries. So I commend that section as well to the conservative readership. And I would like to close with the, the idea that this report is very much a threat-informed report, and it is a bipartisan consensus report, which, as we started off by saying, is this is very unique to be able to do this, to really understand what our strategy should be and provide these unanimous bipartisan recommendations. It's also a report that really looks at the long game we looked far out into the future, and we looked at the changing geopolitical situation. We looked at what Russia's doing. We looked at what China's doing. And we looked at the aggressive foreign policies that they have put in place, how they're seeking to supplant the U.S. global leadership role for the long term. So this, is, this report is not a recommendation for tomorrow or next week. It's much more thinking about how the U.S. is positioned for the next decade or two. So our report talks about things that need to be done now to be able to position future decision makers so they have decisions to make, so they're not foreclosed if the current situation continues on its trajectory, which we have not seen any indication that it will change. So it is a, it is a long game report. Thank Great. you. Well, thank you all for joining us here. I think this was a terrific discussion. I know I learned a lot. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks to all our viewers. And, and please join me in thanking our commissioners for sharing their views with us today. Thank you.